Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 74, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, we just want to say a huge thank you if you do check out this podcast every single Friday, or maybe you're one of our many new listeners. I know we're getting lots through the door recently. So just to kind of recap what we do on this show. Now, we kind of reminisce about the, the golden age of video games and computers. You know that excitement that you felt when you got your first ever games console? Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Like those kind of shared memories of, you know, downloading those MP3s. But you could only get two a night because the internet was really slow. <laughs> two a week, I think it was for me. <laughs> or maybe, really old school, back on the Commodore 64, sliding that cassette tape into your data set, hit and rewind, tape it LOAD... Press and return, or just shift and break. If you and then going to make a cup of tea. Yeah, or, or dinner. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's what the show's all about. It's, you know, memories of video games. And believe it or not, though, in the world of retro, there are still lots of new stories and developments. So in a bit, Ravi and I are going to go through the top stories that have been making the headlines this week. And then, in the second half of the show, we welcome a veteran from the video games and technology industry to be our special guest and share their stories. And my word, have we got a big one this week. I, I, I can't believe we've got him on. And, you know, this guy, I've listened to his music ever since I've been a kid, and it's all probably burnt into your minds if you've played the C64 or any other similar consoles. This is the master of video game music, Rob Hubbard. Now, Rob, just to put this into perspective, he did over 100 game soundtracks on the Commodore 64 in about eight years. Yeah, and I've not seen that many interviews with him online. I've I've seen, you know, Bedrooms to Billions talk to him recently, mm-hmm. and there's a few kind of text ones, you know, small answers and stuff, but this is a really detailed interview with Rob, so I think you guys are going to love it. Because Rob, I mean, he's, he's quite a hard man to get hold of. He doesn't tweet, he's not on Facebook, he doesn't have a website. Yeah. I won't ask it. how you found him. <laughs> Ravi's secret contacts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, just thinking of some of the games he did, I mean, International Karate... Oh, yeah, Monty on the run. Commando, Knuckle Busters, you know, pretty much anyone who played the Commodore 64, this guy was like the soundtrack to our childhood. Yeah, and, you know, he influenced tons of other musicians as well, so he's kind of done a hell of a lot for video game music. And, you know, Rob, he didn't think it would be a big thing. No. He didn't think that video game music would actually last more than a year. Or the industry in itself, you know yeah. what I mean? So this is such an interesting interview, and Rob, I mean, he's, again... We've had some huge names on recently, and Rob is another one that we constantly get asked for. So if you've been wanting to hear Rob Hubbard on the Retro Hour podcast, hang around. This interview is incredible. He's coming up in around 15 minutes from now. And if you do love the Retro Hour podcast, and you listen on maybe iTunes or YouTube or SoundCloud, please do keep your reviews and comments coming in. Yeah, because we haven't had that many iTunes ones recently, but we've got a load of new listeners. So come on, guys, join the review crew. So please do keep those coming in. Obviously, it all helps us get up the charts and get in front of new people as well. So we really appreciate that. And of course, another way that you can show your support to the Retro Hour podcast is by making your way into the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, we do have, and you know, we've talked about this before, we think of this as a tip jar. It's completely optional. If you want to put a couple of quid couple of euros, couple of dollars that goes into the running of the show. We have a PayPal link on the front page of theretrohour.com and there's even a Bitcoin link as well if you want to do it anonymously, which a few people have been doing recently. Yeah. And we want to say a huge thank you this week. Making their place in the Hall of Fame, Eric Nelson. Liam Clancy. William Bateman. And Lee Besford. Who all made donations this week. If you'd like to do the same, obviously we appreciate every penny we get and it all goes back into the running of the podcast. All you've got to do is head to theretrohour.com. You've been playing some Sonic this week, Ravi. Oh, yeah. You know, we mentioned Time Twisted the other day, which was this 12-year 
made fan game that's free to download. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my god, I actually downloaded it and played it, and it's so good. Seriously, you can just set up your um, wireless pad really easily. And uh, I had my nice w- Xbox One pad, and I was just sitting there kind of playing it. And it, it felt to me like after Sonic and Knuckles, this is the game that should have came. This yep. is what Sega should have done. And if they'd released this on the Saturn or something, oh, can you imagine? They'd, they'd still be around, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, we talked about it obviously a couple of weeks ago. Quality of it, though, I mean, it could be a commercial release. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the only difference I can see from it being a Mega Drive game is the size that's not going to fit on a cartridge because there's so many wields and extra bonus levels, but also the music. The music's a lot more advanced than a Mega Drive could do. Well, this year is obviously a very good one for retro Sonic fans because not only did we have the free game, but also Sega's official retro-style Sonic game, Sonic Mania, is getting very close. We must have first mentioned this about a year ago. Yeah, and we kind of saw some really nice promos because it... It is 2D, and if anybody's also played Sonic Generations, it was another kind of really good title. So I think this is going to be like in that ilk. Yeah, well, it's by um, a crew called Head Cannon and uh, Pagoda West. They're the ones who've, you know, they did lots of ports of the classic Sonic games to like new systems. And you can tell this is a labour of love. And, you know, ever since I saw the first trailer um, last summer, I've been really wanting to play this. And originally it was going to be out in quarter one this year, then it got delayed a little bit like that. So, um, you know, I got a Nintendo Switch. (laughs) People are going to think I'm nuts here. Mainly to play this game on the go. I love my Switch. You know, I've been playing loads of different games on it recently, but, you know, I've got the new Street Fighter game that's on there and Bomberman I've been playing and Mario Kart 8. But Sonic Mania, I was thinking... I'm going to Wayne Holiday this month to Italy. I want to play Sonic Mania on the plane, on the balcony. Unfortunately, it's going to kind of miss my deadline of June for my holiday. But we've now finally got an official release date, and it is August the 15th. Oh, that's good. And what we're talking about here is a 2D Sonic game as well. It's not like your Sonic Adventure, is it? Wait. No, I mean, there is one called Sonic Forces they're going to be bringing out later in the year. That Sonic Teams are like kind of... One that probably will be crap, let's be honest. But yeah, this is the one that's kind of a tribute. You know, it could have come out on the Mega Drive looking at it. And I think that's just fantastic. And you're also saying the kind of price point that they've introduced it at is uh, really competitive. Well, what would you pay for this game? I'd pay 40, 50 quid for a new Sonic game. That, that was good. Well, I was expecting probably about 30, 40 quid. But they've released today that it's going to be priced well below 20 quid. Apparently on Steam... You can pre-order it now with 10% off its usual fourteen ninety nine price. Oh, wow. That's that's really cheap, yeah. Yeah, so fourteen ninety nine. That's for, like an indie game kind of price, isn't it? Yeah, but with, with Sega's official backing, so it's... Uh, I, I think this game's going to be amazing. Everything I've seen about it and even... There are some videos on YouTube, and if people haven't had a proper look into it yet, I imagine most fans of our show probably had. But I'll, I'll put those in our show notes this week at theretrohour.com. I've always been a Sonic fan since the early days. Never been that good at Sonic, if I'm honest, but that's part of the fun for me because I'm pretty crap at it. I do like the challenge. Get, getting over. past that challenging level. Yeah. yeah, especially when you have the pinball bits as well. I'm like, oh, you just get lost in those. Oh, for God, hours. yeah. So bring it on Sonic Mania. I'm actually going away uh, on my honeymoon later on this year. So even though it's going to miss my June holiday, I think I'll be ignoring the misses on the honeymoon. That's it. Planning for the honeymoon. <laughs> Sitting there playing games. <laughs> now, obviously, if we're talking about legendary computer companies... Next has got to be up there in one of the most important technology companies of all time. Oh, yes. Next was the uh, machine that Steve Jobs headed. 
Yeah, after, well, after he left Apple. When which... he got binned from Apple, yeah, yeah. in about 1985, he obviously went to uh, set up Next Software Incorporated, and obviously they had like the Next Cube and these quite high-end machines. A lot of them were kind of used in desktop publishing and the creative industries. But also, I mean, you know, if you're talking about important things that happened on there, the World Wide Web was made on a Next Cube. Yeah, and it was a uh, it was called Next Step, wasn't it? The operating yeah. system. Yeah, which um, you know Apple obviously bought Next in the late nineties. Uh, Next Step turned into OS ten that they use now. Um, you know, was it OS X Next? Or I think there might have been a bit of that in there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, you don't pronounce it OS X, so that's always been a you know a bugbear of oh, Apple fans. What is it? <laughs> OS ten. Oh, okay, sorry. Roman numeral. After oh yes, after yeah, OS yeah, nine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, maybe there is some of the next in there. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't sorry, think of it, I didn't think of the numerals. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't think of the yeah, so Ravi were met in the middle there. Uh, but I mean, such an important company. Without that as well, like the iPhone wouldn't have come around without yeah. you know the next software. But what's quite interesting is a document has been donated to the Computer History Museum showing that apparently Steve Jobs had a different plan for Next. He wanted to basically make it into a dot-com company that they were going to um, do an IPO and let people, you know, buy shares in the company. Oh, okay. Inspired by Netscape. Now, obviously, Netscape went public, didn't they, in like the mid-90s? Yeah, yeah. You famously remember. Um, But... Next were quite an interesting company because the hardware, you know, even though it was quite pricey, it didn't really earn a lot of money for them. And the OpenStep operating system, they did release that on a lot of different platforms as well. But really, had this really good technology called Web Objects. Okay. Which was really, I and mean, it was for making applications on the web. It was Java based. And even like, um, you know, Apple used it for making the iTunes store. But really, Jobs thought the future of Next was going to be Web Objects, and he kind of was going to bank the company on that. Um, you know, let let people buy shares in the company, hopefully make his money back on it, and kind of that will be the future of the company. That was a plan for it. And then it ended up Apple really needed him. Yeah. And it kind of got devoured by those guys. I mean, you're looking at the losses. Next actually made a loss of $273 million. And they reckon that, you know, doing these shares, which would have been $16, would have raised them $72 million, So it's still about 200 million in debt but well, well I find it interesting that you mentioned Netscape as well because Netscape if if you've ever watched a, there's a fantastic documentary about Netscape and how Microsoft kind of you know with their monopoly uh, destroyed Netscape essentially and it became the Mozilla Foundation yeah. and uh came back and bit Microsoft in the bum, really, <laughs> with uh, Firefox. That's on YouTube, isn't it? You can watch that documentary. Yeah, fantastic. I recommend that to everyone. Yeah, so it's quite interesting to see what could have been, because you just think if he decided not to let Apple buy the company, I mean, judging by the finances and the way that Apple were at the time, both companies needed each other. Mm. But it's interesting to think if that had happened, you know, there might not have been, like, no iPhones today, you know, no Mac OS Maybe if the company took a different direction earlier, no web as we know it now. Yeah, so. it's, it's crazy. A little form yeah. could have changed everything. <laughs> so if you want to have a look at that little form that could have changed the world, I'll put that in this week's show notes as well. Now, speaking of the iPhone, um, one of my favourite games has been made free to play on iPhone and Android this week. Crazy Taxi. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> That's it. You're a big fan of Crazy Taxi, weren't you? Oh, yeah. I, I remember um, going to this really rubbish arcade that would smell of cigarettes and there'd be fruit machines. But the one appeal for me, well, two, House of the Dead machine. And next to that, you'd have Crazy Taxi and you could actually lean back on the arcade machine and you had a big wheel. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really cool. Well, I, I remember it because I kind of got out of gaming in the early 2000s, but I remember playing it on the Dreamcast, um, you know, just before my... Uh, sabbatical where I took about six years off gaming but it was I mean it's, I've always loved racing games anyway and that game is just 
it's just hilarious to play, even to this day, you know. It's just the kind of, you know, you, you finish your job and then your heart gets racing because yeah. you've got to finish it next Watching time. That clock. It's like that, that kind of build-up of panic. Well, you could always get this game on, like, iPhone and Android. It's been out for, God, about seven, eight years, I think. But now they've made it free to download. The oh, only, cool. The only thing is it's ad-supported. So, yeah, Wasn't but, there enough ads in it anyway with, like, driving around to Pizza Hut and KFC and all of the tower records. Don't you remember all the, all the product placements? Ad- yeah, yeah, in-game stuff. Well, with this, though, you've actually got to kind of watch adverts before you get into oh, the game. God, even more. <laughs> so you've got to sit there and watch a video. But I opened this up on my phone. Here we go. What's wrong there? What? Where's... I, 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 I. That was... Oh, man. So they haven't got the original Offspring tune in there? Well, you know what? Every article I've read said it is in there, but I've been playing it today and it hasn't come around for me unless there's like a couple of different songs in there. But that was the most annoying thing about Crazy Taxi, but it actually got good. Like, every menu would be... Ay, 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 ay. Like, everything <laughs> would be constantly, yeah. And, you know, I, was, I remember Pretty Fly for a White Guy by The Offspring. That was a tune. But yeah, it's yeah. like, all I want was just... It's not Crazy Taxi without that. Yeah, even if you paused it, I think it still played that song. It was like, you know. <laughs> but there is, I mean, apparently there are ways to like play your own music over the game. So I guess you could download it off the iTunes store and like, you know, <laughs> listen to it over it on repeat or something. Yeah, but. but that's a bit sad. They should have included that, you know. You want to get the full experience, don't you? Even if it is free. Yeah. And, and full of adware, bloatware crap. <laughs> you know. Well, I think their license for the song did run out a few years ago, some people have been saying. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean... It's not the same without the Offspring music, but it's, it's cool to have it for free. It yeah. is only $2 if you want to buy it anyway, so... Yeah, there you spend go. the $2 for Offspring. Yeah, and another <laughs> $2 on the on the music, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, maybe buying music wasn't quite your style back in the day, and in the early 2000s, we did kind of mention at the beginning about, you know, services that would let you download MP3s back in the day. Napster, obviously, was a big one. Napster was the biggest for me. Um, before, we'd download everything from briefcases and you'd have to find little rubbish sites, FTPs, hardly any tunes, probably a few like Metallica ones somewhere. <laughs> and Or MIDI versions. There was MIDI versions of everything. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, Napster came out and you had full MP3s. It was fantastic. Well, it's fair to say Napster changed the world. Oh, totally. Totally changed the world and kind of just blew that idea of piracy. You know, opened Pandora's box. That's what Napster did. Because so much of the music industry and, you know, these kind of ageing rock bands and stuff, they were so resilient to having their music available in a digital format. So I remember you go to, like, our price and stuff in 96, 97. See, the albums were, like, 18 quid. Yeah, yeah, and I remember all the campaigns on TV. You'd have, like, Dr. Dre saying, screw Napster. And you'd mm-hmm. have, like, you know, Metallica. They yeah. were massively against it, yeah. They didn't want the music to be released digitally at all. And then, obviously, Napster came along... Then you had services like iTunes came along in its wake, and it really was a service, like you said, open Pandora's box and changed the world. Quite interestingly, though, Sean Parker, who is best known for founding Napster, and obviously he was in there like quite early in Facebook's history as well, two massive companies, now he's working on patenting an anti-piracy technology. How ironic. Yeah, how ironic, and it sounds a bit of a, a silly idea. Well, I don't know if it's a silly idea, but I don't think it's going to work. He's basically, the idea is called the screen room and you kind of pay £50 music ticket, you pay £50 to stream a movie and that's the the idea is that that's how much you'd pay to go to the cinema. So it's like the latest movie in the cinema is directly sent to you 
Cody, Cody. Um, but, um, <laughs> so you can watch it at the same time it's in the cinema. Pretty yeah, much. yeah. And but this time it's legitimate. But also, it will monitor nearby devices uh, to prevent digital content misuse. So it's doing some degree of spying on your maybe your home network to okay. see if you're ripping these things or sending them to other devices. You know what though? Like someone like Sean will surely realise that if you can watch it on a screen. If you can listen to it on a speaker, there's always a way. It's weird as well because, like, Napster, he didn't give a damn then. You know, he was like, this is the future. We're we're blowing up, you know, we're totally destroying the music industry. And the kind of movie industry at the moment is rife with piracy and he's trying to lock it down now at, at the point where I see the most movies are being distributed to people via, like, TV boxes, torrents and all of these other means, it's more available than it's ever been. And he's trying to limit it. It just seems a bit um, weird. <laughs> well, obviously the movie industry are in a panic yeah. about how it's all going. And, uh, you know, you did say there are services like Cody, and I know you can often get the, well, so I hear, uh, the latest movies that are showing in the theatre, often with, like, you know, subtitles or from abroad, that kind of thing. Yeah. But they do need to do something about it, but I'm not, I'm not convinced this is the way. Yeah, I not f- think Sean Parker's going to be their saviour. No. Well, I think, you know, surely the, the solution to this is kind of the way they did it with the music industry. Because, like I said before, they were charging 18 quid for a CD before in the late 90s. Then kind of when iTunes and that got, you know, publicly available and you could download music legally from them, you'd pay a fiver for an album. Anyone would do that. You know, it's easier to buy it legitimately than it is to find a good copy. But then it's, it's the experience as well. So now I went to the cinema... A showcase, which is a cinema outside of Nottingham. Mm-hmm. And I'd not been there for 10, 15 years to the showcase because it's a, a real old one. I went there. They've they've got £7.50 a ticket, quite cheap. And they've got these luxury chairs there. Nice, that you they? can kind of lift up the seats and arms. And, oh, it's really nice and really big 3D screen. It was fantastic experience. And I'm definitely going back there. So, you know, there's those elements they need to make it a nice experience again and people will go to the cinema well some of the best cinemas i've been to recently have you heard of everyman cinemas no have they got one of these in leeds there's like a big new um shopping center there and there's one upstairs uh went a couple of years ago to watch the alan partridge movie yeah with, with my mate used to go uni with who still love alan partridge and it's so cool because i mean you actually get your own couch when you go in yeah and they have a waiter comes over they bring you beer and pizza that's, that's yeah my so my girlfriend's from brazil and she says you just get a menu there yeah, and you could like ring a bell and people just bring you food and stuff and the cinemas are massively popular yeah. same with India as well in India people are just serving you food the films go on for like six hours but I mean here it is kind of going to the Odeon on a Saturday paying 50 quid for a family of four and the popcorn and all that and, and then sitting through adverts for half an hour and then yeah I think yeah. the solution is like you said it's making it a better experience mm. or if you want to watch these films at home give people a way of doing it in an affordable way, maybe through something like Netflix or mm. same as iTunes, you know, make the movies affordable, then you're going to earn more money by more people doing it legitimately. I yeah, think. but I think spying on people is not the way to go. Yeah, Sean Parker, you got it wrong there. Maybe he's doing something dodgy in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, downloading MP3s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, using their servers to do yeah. that, yeah. I'm sure he isn't. Uh, now, before we get into this week's interview with the legend that is Rob Hubbard, uh, quite a cool little Commodore 64 story that you found here. Wolfenstein 3D has had a port to the Commodore 64 and 128 if you have a super CPU accelerator. 
Do you know what the super CPU is? It's an accelerator. It's, it's, it's a very nice accelerator, and uh, you need 16 meg of RAM as well. Which is a lot for a C64, admittedly. Yeah, definitely. But this accelerator, I remember seeing it years ago, and uh, they had a really cool kind of custom games made for it, and it can run a lot more powerful stuff than the uh, C64 used to. So they had this one called Metal Dust, and uh, I remember seeing that, and I was like, oh, this is quite an amazing-looking side-scroller. And then the soundtrack came on, and it was this big German techno band metal dust <laughs> yeah, it was really cool and uh some of the stuff you can do is amazing but i'm not really sure where to get these super cpus from i know the nowadays. first first release that came out i mean that was a bit buggy i remember but the, the version two of the super cpu um probably the best accelerator that you can get for the c64 but there has been this port of uh, wolfenstein 3d and what's really cool is it's actually based on the um open source you know original id software source code and there's a little YouTube video on uh, Indie Retro News here um, that Neil's embedded on the page, and the scrolling is so smooth on it for a Commodore 64. Have you watched this video? Yeah, yeah, I've seen the video. Um, but I'm also looking here that they've got a version of Doom, and they're yeah. saying that Doom's not nowhere near as good as this uh, Wolfenstein version. I remember that Doom, I think, was just a standard C64 port. Yeah, it's just like an experimental yeah. kind of version. But yeah, this, this looks great. But you can even get Doom on the, the VIC-20. Someone ported it to that a couple of years ago. So, and it actually plays Have all right. Have you seen the Vectrex demo as well? Well, no, is that all Vectrex? Vectrex-based Doom. They've done the first level. It's insane. Yeah, I can run Doom on my toaster. That's it. <laughs> but if you do want to play uh, this, you know, super CPU release of Wolfenstein, you can play it in the, um, the WinVice emulator 3.1. That supports super CPU emulation. So if you haven't oh, got cool. the original hardware, you can give it a try in there. All right, well, thank you for checking out episode number 74 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday. Uh, please do leave a review or a thumbs up or a comment on your favourite podcast client or anywhere that you listen to the show. That's always appreciated. And now, let's get into one of our most requested guests that we've ever had on the Retro Hour podcast. We're not worthy. Rob Hubbard, you are our God. And we'll see you next week. the retro hour podcast and it is time for our special guest this week and we are so pleased that you took the time to join us welcome to the show rob hubbard hiya now before we get into your uh, stories of your many years of making amazing video game soundtracks let's rewind right back to the beginning do you remember when you first ever experienced a computer then where did it all start um my the first computer experience was, was actually a c6 no it wasn't it was an apple there was an apple um green screen machine that was that was around that I saw but the one that first one that I bought was um, the C64 I was working as a musician I've pretty much been a musician all my life I look back I can't remember a day when I I can't remember ever not being able to play you know or being able to read music or being able to write so um, I was working as a musician and all the magazines were saying if you're a musician you should start to think about getting into computers and that's that's how I kind of drifted into it all. You know, once you get a machine you become very intrigued by uh, how it works and uh, what makes it tick. 
So who was it who convinced you to get a Commodore 64 then? Why was that the machine that you chose? Uh, it was the adverts, because they were like advertising it as having an elephant's memory, because it had 64K. Spectrum was only 16K, and some of these other machines were less. And uh, they said this thing had 64K, and it had like a, it actually had a synthesizer chip, and that was the reason why I got it. I do remember those adverts, actually, because everyone said that Commodore were really bad at advertising, but you, you actually bought it off the back of an advert then? Not, not, on, not solely on the back of the advert. I mean, there was, a lot, there was a lot of other weird machines around at the time, you know, oh. like the, the Acorn Atom. Uh, there, was a, there, was a couple, like, there was a couple of other things. I can't remember the names of them, but they were, like, totally nowhere near as good as a C64. So in, in that respect, it was just pure chance. So how did your first days on the Commodore 64 go then? What kind of stuff were you doing with it initially when you first got it? Well, like everybody else, you get, you get the machine, then you start buying the magazines and typing in the listings and then trying to figure out, you know, what on earth the um, language is about and then figuring out why on earth the stuff you type in never seems to work, <laughs> you know, they never ever did work, and then trying to figure out, well, why doesn't it work? You know, then doing doing stuff in basic yourself and then realising that's no good. And uh, everybody else is programming assembly language, machine code, and so that's the next logical step. That you have to learn machine code. Did you um, find it easy to learn machine code, having learnt to read music and score before? Well, I mean, the music thing tends to give you a more kind of, somewhat of a mathematical uh, leaning. A lot of musicians are kind of into math themselves you know so um at the time i you know i didn't really find machine code that difficult you know once you get to grips with binary and hexadecimal and all this stuff you know but i mean it's like anything else you know you have to be very disciplined about what you're doing and you've got to put in the hours you've got to put in all the work you know it just doesn't happen overnight you got to sweat it out till four or five in the morning night after night you know lots of late nights yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, when are you doing this? This kind of, you know, predated, like, sequences and trackers and all that kind of thing. I mean, what was the process of composing on the Commodore 64 for you at that point? Um, I used to, uh, on, those, uh, on those games, I used to sketch out musical, you know, musical ideas because if I came across an idea, I generally wanted to get it down on paper so that I couldn't forget, you know, I wouldn't forget what it was I was actually thinking about. And then having sketched down, like, some phrases, generally it was a melody and some semblance of some bass notes or something like that, I would then code that up, and it would only be, like, two to four bars or something, you know. And then I would code that up in hexadecimal. It was all byte-driven stuff, and then I would run the machine code monitor where I could edit edit the synthesizer parameters in real time. I could also change the pitches in real time if I didn't like the way some of the pitches were, you know, and then um, after a while I was dealing in hex, I knew all the pitches in hexadecimal off by heart you know, like 3-0 3-C and 4-8 were all, were all C in different octaves mm. I, knew all, I knew exactly what the pitches were because I'd, you know, I'd been that familiar uh, working at it and then having got like a couple of bars or two or four bars going on the machine code monitor, that, that would, I would then expand that out to 16 bars or, or whatever and then work on the next section, which I would then do in the same way. It was never a case of doing, 
you know, a five-minute tune, scoring it out on score paper and then coding the whole thing up, you know, and hoping that you don't make a mistake. It's like programming, programming assembly language, you work in very small chunks and you write verification for these small chunks to see that, to make sure the code is working properly and doesn't have any bugs. And so I used to do music in the same kind of way, very small chunks, and make sure that each little part um, didn't get out of sync with itself. Because if you got a note value wrong and it was looping, it would gradually drift out of sync, you know. It was a lot of um, improvisation then, so you weren't, like, writing the score down and translating it, you were improvising and... I was improvising some of the... um, some bits of it, but it wasn't like... Uh, improvising, the, you know, the whole four-minute piece, you know. Mm. I mean, to me, the the act of composition is pretty much, um, in a traditional sense, is an improvised is an improvised process. I'm sure all the top composers were extremely prolific improvisers, you know. But I'm not talking about improvising like you're playing John Coltrane or something, you know. I'm talking about very uh, very slow, deliberate improvising where you're trying to get into a zone and you kind of hear things in your head and you're trying to uh, capture what your inner ear is telling you into a um, musical sense that you can then translate to a keyboard or score paper. Well, who were you listening to at the time and kind of were you using any of these influences in your music? No, I had a lot of influences because of my background. I had like a strong classical influence, I had a strong jazz influence, and then in, in the 80s there was the uh, there was quite a strong electronic influence with the um, Jean-Michel Jarre and Kraftwerk and, and then all the new romantic pop stuff that was happening. It's like one big melting pot where you have all your own musical influences and, uh, you know, it's not a case of that people compose totally original stuff out of thin air. You know, um, the only way you could do that would be to take somebody, give them a piano and lock them in a room for 30 years and make sure they don't actually listen to any outside influence. Everybody who composes has, like, a whole laundry list of influences that they've had, and that's and that kind of, kind of amalgamates bits and pieces from it all and comes out in the writing, you know. It's actually really interesting you mentioned Kraftwerk and New Romantic Music because we've had other video game composers on the show before who said really around that time, you know, the early 80s when electronic music was becoming more mainstream, it actually helped a lot of musicians and artists take computer music more seriously. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. The um, the fact that these bands like started, you know, Human League and uh, Bitch Ewer and Flock of Seagulls and uh, Depeche Mode with Vince Clark and all that stuff, who did kind of bring it to the um, to the mainstream. And they, you know, they started experimenting with the sounds and it became very fashionable. If it wasn't for them, I don't think anybody would have ever listened to Kraftwerk or Jean-Michel Jarre. Well, you started out writing um, educational music software, is that correct? I mean, yeah. it, why did you change to games then? I, I started doing the educational stuff because I thought that would be a moneymaker, you know. But then it became a quick apparent that that just was not going to fly because none of the schools were ever going to be able to afford these computers and the staff were never going to be computer literate enough to be able to get to grips with it. So then I started looking at the game side of it because it was always a way of trying to think, well, how can I make any money out of this stuff? 
How did you kind of get the word out or scout around for work? I did some demos and I bought every computer magazine that was around and made a mailing list of all the addresses and phone numbers of every software publisher and every developer. And I started doing mail outs to everybody. And um, it took about six or seven months before I got any chance to do any work. Most of the time they say, well, you know, we've never heard of you. We don't know who you are, so we're not interested. And that's what happened to me. Well, how did you get involved with Gremlin? How did I get involved with Gremlin? I think they had my demo, and I think I'd done—I think I'd done a couple of Mastertronics games by then, and um, I think they were—I think they were just curious, really, to see what I would do. So I remember as a kid, Mastertronic were a great label because you know, especially their like one nine nine range. You know, kids could actually afford the games. Yeah, yeah, one nine nine for those games. I know. What was your first one that was published then through them? I think it was Action Biker. I think. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first one. Was that crazy when you, you saw your game like in a shop for the first time? That must have been pretty special. <laughs> well, I didn't. No, I, I didn't actually see that game in the shop. You know, plus the fact I thought a game like Action Biker One Ninety Nine was probably around in the shops for for a month, right? Mm. And then would be you know put in the bargain bin for like twenty five pence or something, you know, and that would be the end of it. Nobody would ever hear of that thing again. I thought the whole industry was was only going to be a temporary blip for maybe a year. Lasted a bit longer than that, though, in the end. <laughs> yeah, it did, just a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So did you think your kind of approach to um, video game music, uh, your kind of professional approach, helped yeah. you establish a good reputation? When I first started, the, a lot of the music on the games was just really, really bad. I mean, they were, you know, trying to do some classical things and there was just wrong notes all over the place and, you know, bad timing and... It was just dire. And so, for me, I thought there's got to be a, a gig somewhere where you can a- actually get the notes in the right place and try to make it reasonably in time, you know. That's how I kind of got into it. But, you know, because I'd been working as a professional musician, I had that work ethic as well. If you've got a gig, you're never late for a gig. You show up on time and, you know, you try to play the best you can. You try to give a you know, 100% effort. That was the work ethic that I brought to doing the jobs, you know. Well, what did you think of, like, the Commodore 64's competitors, like the, the Spectrum, for example? The Spectrum really wasn't, a, didn't really factor into it for me because it was, the 16K Spectrum was, it wasn't something I really had to worry about because I was getting so, such a lot of work on the C64, you know. Um, later on, I did do stuff on uh, Spectrum 128, Amstrad, ST, Amiga, and the MSX machines. You know, obviously, t- talking about the Commodore 64, you mentioned there that it had a, you know, more RAM than the Specky, for example. Did you ever run into like, problems with the memory limitations of the 64, though? Did that ever get frustrating when you got told, you know, how, how, much, how many kilobytes you might have to fit your music into a game? Well, you know, it was like a Brexit negotiation, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, you basically get in there with the programmer and uh, you negotiate these stuff. My rule of thumb for most of the for just about every platform that I worked on was always 10%. I want 10% of the memory and 5 to 10% of the processor. That that was the same with the C64, the Amstrad, the NES system, the uh, Sega Genesis, and the Sony PlayStation. It was always the same kind of ballpark that I would ask for. Did that ever cause arguments? <laughs> um, not really. Um, sometimes I did compromise, you know, I uh, had one game on the 
Amstrad where I had to get everything into 2K, believe it or not, is actually 2,000 bytes, you know. Mm. Everything. That was the code, the music data, and the sound effects. And so it's a case of stripping out, well, I can't afford to have this root part of the code. It takes too many bytes. I can't afford to have this. I need to simplify this. You juggle things around and you bit pack everything to the millionth degree to try to use every bit available of every byte to, you know, to get something to work in a very small amount of memory. You must have had lots of little hacks and tricks that you were doing on these machines. Yeah, I mean, there was one of the big routines was a vi- was a vibrato routine, and you know, you couldn't do a proper divide because these eight-bit processors didn't have a divide instruction. So you were always trying to see if you could do a vibrato without doing a divide by you know, just using bit shifting and adding and uh, then trying to see how you could get the, that part of the code to uh, run as quickly as possible. You would do a lot of self-modifying code, which we couldn't do these days, but you could back then. So you'd get parts of the code to modify itself. You could even modify some of the instructions. So I remember modifying an increment instruction to a decrement instruction and things like that. We know you agreed to do a soundtrack for a game. I mean, did you get much instruction from the, the publishing companies or the developers, or were, were you given pretty much a free reign then? It depends, you know. It was pretty much around the whole 180 degrees. And sometimes I would go and see the publisher or the developer and spend, you know, half a day down there talking about what they wanted. Sometimes they were very specific and wanted me to basically copy a piece of music, in which case I would try to do that sometimes thing that they wanted me to copy would be completely impossible and I would tell them they can't do it you know and then other times I, all I would get would be a phone call and a, dis, a vague description about what this thing was going to be about and uh, get on and do something but I, I always preferred to actually look at some you know some early graphics to get some sense of the pace of the game Cause you, you want to write some music which kind of fits the uh, speed of the what the graphics are doing if it's like slow paced off it's fairly uh, frenetic you, your music should try to reflect that well, you mentioned like you know kind of unrealistic requests that you might have got from like developers and publishers I, mean, I heard that one guy actually asked you to do like you know basically recreate a Jimi Hendrix song or something on the Commodore 64 yeah that's right yeah I just remember the guy sounded like he was a bit stoned and he just said play some give us some Hendrix man and that was arcade classics fortunately I had that um digitized instrument routine working as well on the non-maskable interrupt and so i did that tune for arcade classics with the electric guitar sample in it that's how that came about not really hendrix but you know the most rocked out thing i could do at the time well uh commando was an interesting story um how did that come about they called me up at um 11 o'clock in the morning or something you know said can you get a train i was living in newcastle can you get a train down to birmingham we want you to work on this game we need it real quick because it's got to ship i got a train down to birmingham spent most of the time in the pub till about 10 o'clock went back to the office and then they locked me in the office and i just worked through the night then eight o'clock in the morning i had everything done the music and the high score and all the sound effects was all done and then uh, I think they took me to the 
train station, I got a train back home. Didn't he have the like music playing on like every computer in the office or something? I heard. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> that must have been a welcome welcome sound when they all came in the next morning. Yeah, I think I think I did something crazy like that. Yeah, <laughs> sleep deprivation. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, one fantastic tune that I love is uh, Rasputin, and it's kind of got a, an almost a techno beat behind it. It's very fast paced. Um, what was the kind of brief on that game? It was just the Rasputin thing with the um, the legendary figure, you know. So, I, I, you know, I think I went out and bought an album of Russian folk music or something, because some of those tunes are really derivative from Russian, well-known Russian tunes. And then uh, I really want to be able to get that tempo to speed up as it progresses. And at the time, the code wouldn't do it, so I then modified the code so I could then at any point in time like specify the tempo and nudge the tempo up <laughs> so uh, that's how that tune came about well obviously one of um, you know your most celebrated games is uh, Monty on the Run I mean that is you know legendary title on the Commodore 64 yeah um, what was the story behind the music on that game then well it was actually they gave me a cassette of that Dick Barton thing which is what it was based on mm. they said you know um, can you can you do this, but kind of just change it a little bit? So, so that's basically what I did. But then I added, like, two other big sections to it. So there's the first section, and then there's the the kind of guitar solo bit in the middle, and then there's, like, the, the kind of frenetic violin thing towards the end. And, uh, you know, it just seemed to fit the, the, pace, of the, the pace of the game, with this thing running around. It was a little platform game, which was really difficult to play almost impossible but it just seemed to fit the the pace fitted the game later on you did a collaboration with ben deglish um, yeah yeah the alvidas and monte what was it like working with him no i was kind of manic (laughs) (laughs) you know um it was it was a bit of a crazy time uh we didn't get much done for quite a lot of hours because we were just goofing off all the time and drinking beer and stuff and um but then when, when we got stuck into it, you know, we did get some, uh, we got some quite novel ideas into that tune, which was to create, it's, it's a pretty unusual tune, I think. And we had Ben on our show about a year ago, but, he, he, you know, very talented guy, isn't he? Oh, yeah, Ben, mm. yeah. Ben's a phenomenal flute player. He's, you know, he's absolutely top draw when it comes to playing flute. Well, um, one game that, you know, really did push the boundaries and, you know, blew me away when I heard it as a kid was, um, even though it was a very difficult game to play, we just put it on for the music and that was uh, The Last V8. Oh, Last V8. That was a one one ninety nine Mastertronic game. Yeah, but very tough to play, but the music on that game, I mean, you know, especially that, you even got like a speech sample um, in the beginning. I mean, how did you get that so clear on the Commodore 64? Uh, I don't know. I don't even know if I did the speech sample or if they did the speech hmm. sample. I mean, I remember doing the music and other things, but I don't, I don't recall anything about that speech sample. Well, the music itself was quite futuristic sounding as well, wasn't it? Yeah, but the game was kind of this last, I thought it was like some kind of Mad Max futuristic mm. thing, from what I remember. The last V8 with a V8 engine car or something, I don't know. Well, were there any instances where, you know, you did the music for a game and then got to play it after and like the game itself was a bit of a letdown compared to the music? Um, to be honest, we uh, after like I did, you know, the thing on a spring, and I, I did. A, I looked at Monty on the run the game, and after that, I didn't really look at any of the games because I didn't have time. the The phone would ring and say, "Can you do this? Can you do this?" And I, I would just accept it, everything that came in, and say, "Yes, I'll do it." You know, 
I wasn't prepared to um, to turn any work down. But it, you know, I never actually got to play any of those games. But I didn't have any time to do that. Well, have any tunes that you made been kind of unexpected hits? Ones that you thought weren't that good, or well, weren't amazing, and they've been taken up by the audience. Yeah, I would say so. I, when I first did the sanction tune, the very the first section of it, I thought, oh, I thought I'm not really sure about this. I didn't I didn't like it very much, and um, it did start to get better when I when I uh, the more I kind of added on to that tune, then people really started to like that tune, and and then after a while, I started to like it. But initially, I didn't really like it very much. One of your biggest stories of success on the Commodore 64 would be the uh, music for International Karate. Yeah. And Egg Plus, I mean, you know, before we did the interview tonight, I'd listen again to the International Karate music, and it's incredible what you do. I mean, it's like over 10 minutes long. <laughs> did yeah. you use any, like, new methods in, in making that? Uh, the, you know, the thing is, my mindset at the time was that, you know, these people are playing these games, right? They're playing them for hours on end, and so you've got to, you know, you can't just do something for a minute and a half because it's just going to drive them nuts, you know. So you've got to try to do something that's got some interest in it and that they're a bit longer type of tunes. That's why some of these tunes went up to 10 minutes and 12 minutes. And I think the longest one I did was 17 minutes or something. But just to just so it doesn't get that boring for them. Well, with international karate, I mean, you know, some people said there's influences of, like, you know, Forbidden Colour in there as well and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I mean, yeah, that's what they asked for. They, they, asked, they specifically asked for that. But then, oh, could you change it a bit so, you know, it doesn't, it's not exactly the same, you know. But then I added, just couldn't have that little 16-bar section. That's why I uh, changed all those other sections in there and tried to keep that kind of, um, you know, the same kind of vibe. Well, you made an interesting point there. I mean, did you ever get into like any legal or copyright issues? No, there wasn't any. There wasn't any back then. We weren't even sure who had the copyright to anything. I mean, all the stuff I did was basically do the work and get paid a fee. Nobody was really sure about who owned anything. I don't even know. I, I wasn't sure about copyright. It's not like today. I mean, people are aware of all these rights issues, but not back then. I think I did Zoo Look on a game because they. They actually asked me to do that, and I, I don't know what the legal situation... Because I had to copy it exact, you know, yeah. and I'm not sure what the situation with that tune was. Yeah, I think you're right. It didn't really exist in the, the computer game industry, did it? Everyone just kind of did it, and, like, no one really noticed, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, it was, like... You know, you've seen the film, right? Bedroom to Billions? Yeah, yeah. Have you seen Have you seen the Amiga years? Yes. We had them on our show, actually, yeah. The Amiga Years is a fantastic film uh, with R.J. Michael and J. Minor and Dave Needles and all those guys. And, you know, I've got to give it a plug, not because I owe them anything, but because I think everybody who has an interest in the uh, 80s business needs to see uh, how people were thinking back then. And that film captures what R.J. and those guys were thinking, the way they worked, absolutely spot on. You did some uh, composition as well for Bedrooms to Billions. Yeah, that's right, yeah, for the original, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, magazines were huge back then. Did you have a good relationship with them? Um, yeah, I think that the I had a pretty good relationship with the Zap guys and Commodore User and some of these other magazines. Um, was it CMVG was the other magazine, I think? Yeah. Yeah, I, had a, I would say I had a pretty good relationship with them, you know. Did you ever get to visit the guys at Zap, like their headquarters or anything? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I went to see them. It was manic 
it was just complete mayhem because they were basically kids, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, it beggars belief how they ever managed to get those magazines out on time. And, but, I mean, Gary Penn, not Gary, yeah, well, Gary Penn, Gary Lydon. Gary Lydon's a pretty smart guy, you know. He was pretty wild back then, so was Gary Penn. They're both pretty smart guys, you know. Well, what was it like when the kind of first trackers arrived and uh, music production software started to come out? Did it make life easier? Um, well, for me, I, I would, I didn't, re- I kind of bypassed the trackers because I'd moved to the US in 1988. I went to work for Electronic Arts, so I was stuck with the IBM PC for a while until the NES came out and the Sega Genesis came out, and then I could get back to my um, doing my thing, you know, which is the assembly language programming and low-level chip access. And I never saw those tracker things until well into 2000, you know, the early 2000s. Did you uh, find programming for the consoles as fun as programming for the C64? It would the, Yeah, the programming was fun because I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing for the FM chip and exploring the possibility and <clears throat> getting the digital audio channel to work on the uh, Sega. Uh, I think I got a digital audio working on the NES. I think, I can't remember. Um, but that aspect was fun. Musically, it was uh, quite different, though, because the U.S. audience were never going to put up with something like knuckle busters, you know. And so you had to be a bit more uh, straight-laced or middle of the road with what you were doing musically. Well, you did work on these 16-bit computers before you went there. Now, you did, like, some work on the Amiga and the Atari ST as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did a couple of things on the ST and I did a few things on the Amiga. But that was still did before there was trackers. But the Amiga stuff was still all hard-coded assembly language, 68,000 or 68,020. Because I know the Atari ST had, like, that Yamaha chip. I mean, you must have found... Was it actually a bit more limited than the SID? Yeah, it was. It was dreadful. The same chip that was on the Amstrad, and it was the same chip that was on the Spectrum 128 and the MSX machines. It was really... uh, Compared to the SID chip, it was rubbish. Obviously, you went to Electronic Arts after that. How did you get the job there, then, and start working for them? Um, I went down to London to an because I got an award for Best Music for something or other down in London in 87 or 86 or something. And I met um, Mark Lewis and uh, from Electronic Arts. And uh, I was aware of what EA was doing at that time, because they were like really right on the leading edge of what they were doing on the Amiga with uh, Deluxe Paint and some of these other programs. And uh, Mark Lewis says, do you want to come california for a couple of months and work out there and so i went and worked out there for a couple of months and then that's when i did skate or die mm-hmm. and they were they'd never heard that, that digital audio stuff coming out of a c64 with guitars and stuff you know basically they were blown away when they heard that and offered me a job right there and then they said do you want to work in england or california i said well i think i'll go to california not a hard choice to make is it when the sun shines there yeah, yeah. Well, it was a hard choice in a lot of other ways, to mm-hmm. be honest, you know. I was giving up a lot of other stuff, but it was just, you know, you couldn't pass that by, could you? You couldn't pass that chance up, you know. How did you find working out there was different to back home then? Were there many, many changes? It, it was, in the early days of EA, it was great. I mean, it was, there was so much, like, it was a bit like that bedroom to billions, the Amiga years. That whole vibe was still there, you know. Mm. People would pull all-nighters and then they would take, like, two days off and disappear, you know. 
and they didn't care as so long as you kind of you know got the work done but there was a real great sense of um, entrepreneurship and innovation and future vision mainly Trip Hawkins who was driving all that and you know for most of the 90s it was great what was Trip like to work with Trip was fantastic man he he was he was the whole visionary for the company and you know he was like <laughs> When I joined, there was maybe about 160 people there worldwide or something, you know. And, you know, we used to have these meetings and all the salespeople and the admins were all on an equal par with, like, the programmers and the artists and everybody just pulled together and uh, tripped tri everybody exactly the same. It was just... He was always conveying his vision about what he wanted for the future, you know, and uh, everybody got a real interest in the company because they had stock options and a stock purchase plan and all this kind of stuff, you know. And um, what was your role there? Because I know you were the only sound-dedicated person. Yeah, I was the only sound guy that they, ha that they had in the beginning. I was working on all the, all the games and I was writing the code and writing all the music and doing all the sound effects. And they obviously started to hire more people once the Sega Genesis started taking off because they started doing a lot more games and the uh, profits were going through the roof for EA at that time. Was it a surprise when Trip left the company then? Yeah, I think it was a case of um, Trip wanted to go and do his thing. He still had his vision. He went off to do the 3DO, which was really a bit of a disaster because it was too far ahead of its time with what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the corporate side of EA wanted to focus on figuring out how to... Uh, make games that could generate uh, consistent revenues, the, the revenues that they could predict, you know. And I think that was the conflict there. Well, you know, speaking of 3D, I mean, you actually were involved in some of the design process, or, you know, a bit of kind of consultancy work you did on there, on the audio hardware with RJ Michael and Dave Needle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the audio hardware was kind of crippled because of the uh, resources that uh, the chip didn't have in the end. So it, it, did, it didn't go that well. You can ask for the earth, but you're not going to get it when it comes down to costing. Well, obviously, I mean, we did tragically lose Dave Needle in the, in the last 12 months. Yeah, um, we did, yeah. What was he like to work with then? Any, any stories you remember? <laughs> um, not that I'm going to say, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> was he, he must have been an interesting character then, RJ, as well. You know, we've met RJ a few times. Oh, did you? Oh, RJ, RJ was really a fascinating guy. You know, um, um, the thing I remember about 3DO is going down to their office, right? And they had this, like, monstrosity, which was about, you know, a meter cubed of, of this kind of breadboard stuff with wires and all of, you know, it was hanging around all over the place, you know. It just looked like something from the NASA space shuttle or something. And it was, uh, that was like the very first prototype that they did of the 3DO box. What did you think of the hardware when you first saw it then? Because, you know, that, that era, there was so much new stuff coming out, wasn't there? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was much more concerned with the, with the audio side of that than the graphics side. Mm -hmm. So EA obviously had a close relationship with 3DO, didn't they? Like, yeah, they did, yeah, because of the... Yeah, and EA was developing, like, a couple of games for it. But, it, like I say, it was ahead of its time, and um, the hardware didn't deliver what the vision was and the price was wrong as well yeah it was quite expensive wasn't it that machine yeah it was yeah well uh what do you think of the kind of resurgence of chip music at the moment today well, the, the the retro 
worship music and all that stuff is a little bit baffling. You know, there is so much really, really great stuff in terms of uh, software that you can get and VST plugins and uh, uh, sequencers, Logic and Cubase and Sibelius is fantastic. You can do so much with these programs. I, to me, I can't see why anybody would want to do chip music. But then I talked to a friend of mine from Abate uh, called Kenny McAlpine, and he was saying, well, actually, he thinks what happens is that people get so baffled and bamboozled by all the choices that they have with a lot of technology and plugins and mixers and all kinds of other synthesizers. They actually relish the, the thought of just a Game Boy with a limited number of channels and resources. So a lot of their decision making is taken away. And so they only focus on what it, you know, on what a Game Boy audio can do. And that's what attracts them to it. So I think maybe there's some truth in that and also combined with the, um, the built-in nostalgia, as it were, mm-hmm. for <clears throat> those 8-bit uh, chips. Yeah, I guess it kind of reminds people of maybe a you know, simpler time. I think it's the same with like pixel art as well, isn't it? That's quite back in there. Yeah, I think so. People seem to want to you know, always hark back to a period in their life that they grew up with or related to when you know they were associated with the teenagers or puberty or something. Yeah, there's always hundreds of guys on uh, YouTube doing, you know, electric guitar versions of Monty on the Run and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I know. I, I I did see that. I thought, wow, the guys, some of the guys, are amazing. You know, I did a tune called "Ski or Die" when I worked for EA, uh, which had a custom MT32 soundbank that I designed for it, and uh, it was a kind of a rock tune, you know. And it has an absolutely fantastic guitar solo in it. And uh, the story behind that is that when I worked at EA, we had this guy who was like um, network administration or something, right? I got talking to the guy. He says, oh, you play guitar a bit, do you? He says, yeah, oh, yeah. He says, I've just got this MIDI guitar. Can I come in your office and try it out? I says, yeah, sure. And I was working on that Ski or Die tune. And he started playing, and this guy, he was phenomenal. He was just an amazing guitar player. And as soon as he started playing, I said, can you play something over this? I slowed the tempo down a little bit and switched on the MIDI record. He, he played that thing. And then uh, this MIDI guitar, it took, me, it took me hours and hours to edit the MIDI. Mm. Anyway, it ended up in the game. And then I saw this guy on YouTube had transcribed the whole guitar solo at speed and was playing along with it on guitar. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it was amazing, you know. Well, um, you've also worked with the uh, Symphonic Game Music Concert and doing a live kind of symphony version of International Karate. Yeah, that was in 2005, I think, yeah. yeah. We've been doing some scoring with Chris Abbott for some orchestral scores and maybe with a bit of luck we might get another orchestral concert uh, if we get a, enough money from a Kickstarter, we might be able to do that. It's 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 interesting to do that, you know, the orchestral versions of some of these things, because some of them work out pretty good, some of them not so good. It's interesting being involved with the arranging, because some of the arrangements have done by other people of uh, old game music are really not very not up to par. They're not very good. It must be pretty crazy seeing, like you know, the, the, like you said, these 
these, this music you were making, like the Commodore 64 monitor getting played by a full orchestra, that must be pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because there's a lot of other the game music is being done by orchestras on all the recent games that, you know, it trickles down to some of the earlier stuff. I think that people are still interested in uh, the old game music as well. Well, we saw you also received your honorary degree. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that was uh, quite a shock, I can tell you. It was quite a surreal, ex- you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I was dead pleased. I was over the moon to get that. It was a bit of a surreal experience with, because um, Judy Murray was there and this guy, Matthew Syed, who uh, I've seen on TV a lot, you know. How did you find out about that? Did they just, like, get in touch and, like, <laughs> let uh, it go well, on? The um, ceremony was in November and they, they approached me back in March and I got this email saying that, you know, we need to talk to you. And it was from somebody at Abertay University and give me a, give us a call. And I thought, oh, this is some sort of scam, you know, <laughs> like you do with, e- with some emails that, you know, you don't recognise and you think, you immediately think something's a scam. And So anyway, I checked it out and I eventually called the guy and he says, would you be up for receiving an honorary doctorate? And I said, well, yeah, sure I would. You know, I'm going to refuse that, you know. So I mean, you, getting an honorary doctor is a hell of a lot better than getting a knighthood, you know. Have I you changed your cards to Dr. Rob Hubbard? No, 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 <laughs> I haven't, no. Well, obviously, Rob, you know, with such a, you know, a long-spanning career and having so many amazing tracks in you, but, I mean, you've done over 100 in Commodore 64 uh, game music soundtracks. I mean, are there any that you pick out as, like, your favourites or any that you're most proud of? The C64, obviously, you know, I think the sanction stands out. The Ken Tiller stands out, the... Um, a few others, like The Flash, stands out. Um, I mean, I still like some of the others, but I, I've kind of they've been beaten to death too much for me, you know, like The Commando and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still think it stands out, but uh, you know, I, I'm sick of hearing it. Have you still got a C64? No. I got rid of like loads of stuff when I moved to California, mm. and I gave loads of stuff away, you know. What are you planning on making any new tunes? Like I say, if we do this, if this, some of this orchestral stuff comes off, right, then I'll do some new music for that. I mean, I've got a couple of things that I've done, and uh, you're always still thinking about writing things. I mean, I have quite a lot of stuff that nobody's heard, you know. Well, Rob, obviously, if you do make any progress with, like, a new Kickstarter or any new projects, do let us know, and obviously we'll get you back on and give it a big mention on the show. Okay. Absolutely. Well, Rob, it's been amazing talking to you. I mean, you know, you're a guy who uh, was pretty much the soundtrack to our childhood, so it's uh, been amazing having you on the show this week. Okay, no problem. And if people want to keep up to date with what you're doing, I mean, do you tweet or Facebook or anything like that? Got a website? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't tweet. I don't. Well, I used to do Facebook, but I got out of that, you know, and too much of a... Too, too many opinionated people that I'm not interested in their opinions, you know. There's a lot of those. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, we'll look forward to seeing you on Kickstarter, hopefully soon. OK, Bye. thanks.